This morning's scripture passage is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become, con- become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the word of the Lord. Did you ever read a book or um, watch a movie, and when you came to the end of it, you were disappointed? with the end of the story, right? Yeah, you, know, you know the feeling. Um, either because you didn't like the way it ended or because you were left with too many unanswered questions. Well, we've been in a series on the book of Acts throughout the summer, and we're at the end of it. You notice I didn't read Acts for the reading. I read Philippians for a reason I'll come to in a moment. But if I were to read to you the end of the book of Acts, it basically goes like this. Paul got in a lot of trouble. He was put before multiple tribunals. He was sent to Rome. He was put in prison. And for two years while he was under house arrest, he preached the gospel and everybody came to him. End of story. Really, Luke? Can't you give me a little more here? I mean, can't you tell me something bigger about Paul? Can't you tell me something about how he died? Can't you fill in some more? Honestly, I'm just being honest. I look at the book of Acts, and I'm disappointed by the ending. Actually, we can piece together an ending that kind of fills in the gaps through the epistles, Philippians being one of them, and some other epistles. We can also piece together endings of this book that come from tradition because it becomes rather clear from tradition that Paul was imprisoned in Rome for a period of time and then maybe had a break between two prison terms and then was re-imprisoned. And at the end of the day, the emperor decided... He could do away with him, and he executed him by beheading. But none of that's in Luke, and I have to admit, 
I'm kind of disappointed. I'd like to heard him say something. But you know what? There's another part of the story that I just told as a quick overview that I want to tell you now about how it all ended for Paul. First, let's remember this. Last week, Jim Goodson, our preacher, talked about Paul going to Jerusalem. You may remember, he said that there was a prophet named Agabus. Isn't that a great name? I don't know why I didn't name my son that. Agabus, come here. Agabus, anyway. Agabus goes to Paul and he says, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Because if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're going to be taken in. It's not going to be good for you. And Paul basically says, I'm going anyway. He goes to Jerusalem and the prophecy is fulfilled. In Jerusalem, he decides he's going to go to the temple. He isn't making a spectacle of himself. He's just going to the temple. And when he's at the temple, some people who know him well, because he's very well known at this point in his ministry, call him out. They say, there he is. There's the rabble rouser. There's the one who hates the temple and hates our laws and does everything to dispute it. And they riled up the rest of the crowd so much that the text says the entire city was in an uproar. The entire city was in such an uproar that someone ran to the commander in the city, a Roman officer, and said, things are out of control down here. There's another riot. you got to do something. They ran with soldiers to suppress the riot. Now, you know this, right? First century Palestine was under the heavy hand of Rome. And there was all kinds of riots and stuff that would break out on numerous occasions. And the Romans had the unenviable task of enforcing law and order. And they were good at it. Sometimes harsh, but they did agree to certain ways of going about it and certain laws. So the Roman commander comes in and he breaks up the crowd and he grabs Paul and he arrests Paul. Because Paul seems to be at the epicenter. He's the guy who's stirring it all up for some reason. They arrest Paul and pull him away from the crowd. But basically the reason they do is because the crowd wanted to kill him. They pull Paul away from the crowd and they put him in chains. And as he's about to be led off to the barracks, Paul looks at the commander and says, hang on just a second. Can I say something? Commander thinks to himself, well, maybe this will help me figure out the riot. Go ahead, Paul, say something. Paul stands up and starts to speak to the people in Aramaic, and they fall silent. They listen to his every word. And you know what he does? He tells his story. He says, I'm not here to defeat the law and the prophets. I love them, and so does Jesus, the one that I love. Let me tell you about how all this happened. I was on my horse headed towards Damascus, and God knocked me off and introduced me to Jesus. And my life has changed. And furthermore, God has called me to go to the Gentiles. They were listening intently until he got to the place where he said he's called me to go to the Gentiles and a riot broke out again. The commander grabbed Paul, whisked him away, and said we're going to chain him up and we're going to flog him. Now that's a bad punishment. Flogging is very severe. It opens up multiple wounds. Sometimes people die from floggings in the Roman Empire. So Paul goes in for his flogging. They grab him and they stretch him out for the flogging. That's the way they did. Stretched you out. 
and pulled out the whip. And as they're stretching him out, he goes, hey, fellas, wait a minute. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman who hasn't even been awarded a fair trial? Now, if this was a movie, the TV camera would swiftly move to the commander, and his face would be ashen, and he'd be breaking out in sweat. There's a different set of rules for Roman citizens, and they just about beat somebody without a trial who was a Roman citizen, and had they, that commander would have got even worse. The commander comes to Paul and he says, uh, Sir, you're a Roman citizen? Paul said, yeah. Commander said, I paid a lot for my Roman citizenship. Inference, how much did you pay? Paul said, I didn't pay for it. I was born a Roman citizen. Well, the commander is terrified. He puts him in the barracks overnight. During the period of time between which he's put in the barracks and the next morning, 40 men hatch a conspiracy. 40 men who say they will not eat or drink a drop of water until Paul is dead. They take this vow and they plan to kill him when he's moved from prison to trial. Fortunately for Paul, his nephew happens to be in a group that overhears the plot. And he goes to Paul and he says, Paul, maybe he said, hey, Unc, I don't know, Uncle Paul, I got some bad news. There's 40 guys out there who say they're not eating or drinking until they kill you. I, again, don't know what Paul said, but he might have said, son, that's not the first time. <laughs> Been through this before. No, he said, well, you know what? I think you ought to tell the commander about this. So he pulls aside the soldier who's guarding him. By this point, Paul's a rather celebrity kind of prisoner. It wouldn't have been typical, I don't think, for a soldier to listen to a prisoner and take orders from him. Paul pulls aside the soldier and he says, this young man has a message for the commander. Take him to the commander at once. So he does. He takes him to the commander. The nephew of Paul tells the story to the commander. And you know what the commander does? He says, well, we'll solve this problem. So he puts together 200 foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, that's the cavalry, they didn't have tanks so they did it by horse, and another 200 spearmen. They surrounded Paul and escorted him to his new location. I'm thinking those 40 guys are pretty hungry and starving by now. They must have said, okay, nothing we can do, we're going to go back and eat. I don't know, but Paul is released from harm. From that point, Paul is taken to Caesarea. While he's at Caesarea, he gets to speak before two governors and the king of Judah. The king is named Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa. On one occasion when he's speaking uh, to a governor and to the king, the second one, they break away from Paul and they walk away with their wives, by the way, and they're consulting with one another and they say to themselves, you know, this guy's done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. 
I don't know why he's here. And Agrippa says to the governor, if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, he'd be a free man today. Because you see, earlier Paul not only pulled the Roman citizen card, he also said, I appeal to Caesar. And when he said, I appeal to Caesar, the governor said, well then to Caesar you will go. You can't appeal to Caesar and then take it back. So now Paul's going to be sent to Rome. He stays in Caesarea for two years And during that time, the governor makes multiple visits to Paul to try to talk to him. The text says he kind of wanted a bribe from Paul. It's kind of like, I want to get you off the hook here. But Paul gave him nothing. After two years, he's shipped to Rome. He's on his ship, and he's on his way across the Mediterranean Sea, which is fraught with peril. Lots of storms crop up there. And as fate would have it, or no, no, as, as God would have it, A storm blew on. It was so severe that it looked like the ship was going to crash. And Paul said to the commander, Sir, I have something to say. He said, Last night an angel of God came to my side. And he told me, Paul, don't worry. You're going to stand trial before Caesar in Rome. And all the men on this ship will be saved. Well, the commander is a bit awestruck by that. And so he commands everybody to stay on board. They drop anchor until the storm seems to have passed over. And they start towards an island called Malta. But the winds and the waves were still bad. And they crashed upon a sandbar. And the ship literally just started splintering to pieces. The soldiers who were on the ship, Paul's a prisoner now, along with other prisoners, decided they were going to kill all the prisoners. And there's good reason for that. Because if your prisoner gets away, you're executed. So they were going to execute the prisoners, and the commander stopped them, and he said, no. Based on what Paul's saying, we're not executing anybody. He said, everybody for themselves, overboard, swim if you can, grab a piece of driftwood if you can, try to make it to the shore. And more than 200 men, including Paul, made it to the shore safely. While they were on the shore, it's cold and rainy and they're wet. And they decide to make a fire. The native people of the island are very hospitable. And Paul's doing his part. He's gathering brush firewood to put into the fire, and he throws his wood into the fire, and as he does, because of the heat of the fire, a viper comes out and snares him on his hand, and it's hanging onto his hand. The native people of the island look on, and they said to themselves, ah, he's a prisoner, he must be a murderer, and this is justice. The gods have got him. And Paul just went like this and shook the snake off into the fire. And they stood around, knowing the snake well, and waited for him to swell up and die. And nothing happened. When they saw that, they decided he was a god. Well, Paul has had this problem before, too. He's not a god, but they think he's a god, and he gets special treatment. And so he's taken to the governor of the island, who has a big estate, and one of the members of his family is sick. And Paul goes in, and he heals the person. And when that's heard... 
People from all over the island come to the estate and are healed. This is the Acts of the Apostles, remember? This kind of stuff happened. Eventually, they winter there for three months, and then they set out for Rome. When they set out for Rome, they arrive. No more shipwrecks. And Paul's imprisoned, as Acts says, for two years. And for two years, he preached the gospel to anyone who came. End of story. I repeat what I said at the beginning. Come on, Luke. Can you give me something else here? Can you tell me about the people who came? Can you tell me about what was happening inside Paul's mind when he's imprisoned in Rome? Can you tell me about what's going on when he's facing death and he knows it might be tomorrow? Can you? And if Luke was here, he would say, Bob, read the epistles. Read Paul's letters. You'll get a little insight. He might even have said to me, Bob, how about just looking at Philippians 1, verse 21. There's Paul's perspective on life in prison. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does that perspective entail? We, we could spend a lifetime understanding and unpacking that. But let's think about just a couple of things. The first thing this perspective implies is this. Paul is saying, I can and I will trust the invisible hand of God in all circumstances of my life, period. He might have added, and sort of did by implication, sometimes I can actually see the results of the invisible hand of God. And other times I can't. But still, I will trust. That's the way the first chapter opens up in Philippians. He starts out by saying, I want to tell you something. Everything that has happened, I'm in chains, has happened for a reason, and the gospel has been advanced. The whole thing has been for my benefit, your benefit, and the benefit of the gospel. I can trust the invisible hand of God. And on this occasion, I see visible results. A remarkable perspective. But Paul, though he doesn't say it in so many words in that chapter, says it in other places. I can also trust the invisible hand of God to take my foolishness and my weakness and my sinfulness and my stupidity to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Because when I am at my lowest and my weakest, God is the strongest through me in Jesus Christ. That's the invisible hand of God at work. And furthermore, says Paul, the invisible hand of God is at work even in the chaos around me. Even when my enemies are pressing in upon me. Take a look at what's happening right now, Paul says. I'm in jail and people are taking advantage of my imprisonment. 
Some are preaching the gospel out of goodwill. Others are preaching it out of vain motivations. And some, quite frankly, are preaching it despite me. In other words, they're trying to make things worse for me while I'm in prison. But it really doesn't matter to me. Why? Because Christ is being preached. Why? Because I trust the invisible hand of God to do his work in spite of the foolishness of humanity. He might have cut loose, and I would imagine in some of his teachings he did and said, just like the psalmist said, God uses the wrath of men to praise him. Don't you think he could use your foolishness? He says, in effect, I'm going to trust the invisible hand of God. Second, and this is remarkable, he says, my perspective on life is this, I am called to suffer for Christ and with Christ. When I signed up for that, I signed up for the full treatment. As a matter of fact, though he didn't say it in Philippians, he might have, when I was at the road called Straight, in this house, a man named Ananias came to me, and he came to me, and he took my hand, and he called me Brother Saul. And you know what God said to Ananias? God said to Ananias, I want you to go see this man called Saul later, Paul, because I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. Paul, in effect, says, I signed up for this, to suffer for Christ, but more than that, and this is the amazing thing, friend. This is the amazing thing. I didn't just sign up to suffer for Christ. When I suffer, I am suffering with Christ. I want to know Christ, he says, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. How ridiculous is that to our human experience? I want to enter into the suffering of Christ because it's a deep form of fellowship. By the way, um, when I hear that, it sounds sadomasochistic, right? Isn't that what you're thinking? This guy's nuts. It's not. I also think about it, and I think to myself, well, he must be suggesting that he wants to suffer with Christ like Christ suffered, vicariously, almost entering into the pain of sin that he caused Christ. And to a certain extent, I get that, and it's probably true. But there's something else going on here I'm convinced of. When Paul says, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, he's not just talking about what happened to Christ, historically, though it did. He's talking about the presence of Jesus Christ in this world right now. He didn't leave us as orphans, he said. He is with us through the power of the Spirit and right now is suffering with us us and suffering with a lost world and in that suffering he is redeeming and Paul says I want to be a part of that that's the only way for redemption to happen for me for everyone else and for the world that's my fellowship that's my calling to suffer with Christ okay 
So let's be honest. When's the last time that crossed your mind? When you were going through any kind of suffering. Or when you were falsely accused. If you're like me, almost never. I'm ashamed to admit it, but almost never. I whine, I complain, I say, how long will this last? Get me out. And Paul says, I'm suffering with Christ. He wasn't Pollyanna, by the way. He didn't always say this. You can take a look at other passages, like in 2 Corinthians, where he wasn't so happy. And he wondered what was going on. But at the core of his being, he understood this was his calling. The third thing it means in terms of our perspective on life, when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is this. The end of life is not simply the elimination of suffering. We frequently say when somebody's going through a terminal illness and they pass away, well, at least they're no longer suffering. And that's true, and it's a wonderful. I don't mean to demean it, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, not the end of suffering, though that comes. What I get through death is gain. What I get through death is life. What I inherit when I die is everything that brings meaning to life. To die is literally, says Paul, gain. I, I don't know how many funerals I've done in the last 25 years, but it's a bunch of them. And at our best, the Christian community gathers around for funerals and memorial services, and we rejoice in this theme that death is not just the cessation of pain, it's the entrance into eternal life, a life that we cannot even imagine. And quite frankly, we don't know much about life after death. There's all kinds of theories. But honestly, the Scripture didn't give us much. Except this one really important thing. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Period. End of sentence. It's almost like Paul, who penned those words, said, now fill in the gap. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not only is it relational, it's the greatest relationship you could ever imagine, but it's something more than that. To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord means the ultimate meaning of life has been fulfilled. Because Jesus Christ is not just a being who you have relationship with and love, although you do. Jesus Christ is the source of life. So everything that you and I long for, everything that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans for, all of it is found in Christ. So to be present with Christ means the culmination of everything that is good. 
And you can't even imagine how great that is. That's why he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My life, he says, is a win-win either way. A little bit later in this chapter, he says, which one should I choose, death or life? As if he had a choice. It's almost like he's just being funny. He couldn't choose. He knew that. He was just saying, if I had the choice that God said, hey, you want to live or you want to die? I'd say, well, let me think about it. I really like you people a lot. And I'm having a great time talking about Jesus. And I want to stay around and be with you. But wait a minute. To be with Christ? I don't know. Let me think about that one. It's kind of humorous. Paul's just saying either way. It's a win-win. Why? Because my life is hidden in Christ. My puny, tiny, little life that can be so easily snuffed out and destroyed is hidden inside Jesus Christ. And for that reason, it's insulated from sin and death. And nothing can take that away from me. Wow. What a message, huh? So, what would this look like? This life in Christ. That's another sermon (laughs) that would be inadequate. But one thing came to mind almost immediately when I ask myself that question. To truly live in Christ, it would be the absence of the tyranny of self. See, I'm my own worst enemy. I'm not much, but I'm all think about. And you know the feeling. And so many of your decisions are driven by the tyranny of self. What will people think? How will this make me feel better? Just add to the list the tyranny of self. It's an ever-present reality, and I'm sick of it. I would love to live completely for Christ. What would it look like if I did? What would my world look like if we did? What would my relationship called marriage look like if that was true for me? Well, first thought is my wife would be the happiest woman in the world. (laughs) It wouldn't be all about Bob anymore. My kids would glow in the bask of the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's not there yet. It's not going to happen now. But it could be a goal. I think you know, I try my best to personalize my sermons. And part of the question that came to me is, Bob, what would your church be like if you lost the tyranny of self 
Got to live for Christ and Christ alone. I don't know. Can't quite imagine it. People that work with me every day, wow, what a new world. You don't have to shake your head yes or anything. All right, guys. The board of elders that I work with sees my self-centeredness all the time. Wow, would they be a happy lot? What would your world look like at work? Everywhere you are. If you lost the tyranny of self and accepted Christ and Christ alone. Actually, after I got done with all this, I realized that there was an ending to this story called Acts. It was the words of Paul. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It doesn't get any better than that. I have to tell you, it's um, really struck me this week. And I want to make it a new goal to be able to say that for real every day. I know this, it's going to take a long time, but if you want to join me, I'm going to try. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for how it challenges us, but it doesn't just challenge us and make us feel foolish. It challenges us with grace. It says this is who you ought to be. In light of the grace that's been dispensed to you in Jesus Christ. Don't spend time with your guilt. Just pursue Jesus. You're forgiven. Take up your cross. Follow me. I want to give you a new life. And Lord, we thank you for that initial new life. And we pray for those who who have not received you that way yet. I've not had that that crisis point in their life where they just said, okay, I give up. It's yours, my life, everything. We pray that we'll come to that point, Lord. But for those of us who, who have, we realize that that's not the end of the story. The rest of our life, you continue to tell us, take these words and make them your life. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So, Lord, help us to do that. We're we're not sure what all the steps are, but we're sure it begins with a first step, uh, a commitment to follow. And especially as this new year begins, uh, around here sort of the beginning of a lot of things, we pray that that new commitment will drive us, will inform our reality, and will change our world. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.